Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Hey, uh, we're going to start a new series today. And uh, I've called it Transformed. Uh, And one of the key texts... Uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus. This is God's intent for your life. One of the questions we ask is, well, what does that look like? What does that look like for me? What does that look like for us as a church, for for a, a gathering of believers? And importantly, how does he actually go about doing that? What does it take for us to be a transformed people? What does it take for us to live as a transformed church? You know, when I first became a Christian, I used to think that God called and God used a certain kind of people, special people. And I was absolutely convinced that I I just was not one of them. I didn't have the right kind of background. I didn't have the right kind of personality. I didn't have the right kind of gifts. And I could very easily think of all the things that I thought I didn't have that then became the excuse or the reasons to believe that God couldn't use me. Doesn't mean I can't support those people and pray for those people and and give towards ministry and things like that. And even though I wanted to be used of God significantly, I honestly thought I'm just not the right kind of person. And I can clearly to this day remember so clearly looking at other people in ministry and thinking to myself, I could never do what they do. I could never do what they do. But here's the wonderful and yet bizarre thing as I reflect over my life. It is just so bizarre to contemplate. Kerry and I, we're now in our fourth decade of ministry. That just blows me away. It's so bizarre that I find myself traveling the world and speaking into the life of pastors and churches. And in a few weeks' time, about six weeks' time, I'll be back in the Philippines for just three days uh, as part of the celebrations of Compassion's 50th anniversary of ministry uh, in the Philippines. The first two days of that uh, is a gathering of pastors from all over the country, the pastors that head up 450 compassion projects throughout the Philippines. And they're all gathering. I've got two days to minister to 450 pastors. Where did that happen? How did that happen? Where did that come from? And all of these incredible privileges and wonderful opportunities to me feel so incredibly surreal. And it's super important for you guys to know this. I know I am nobody special. I know that I am no spiritual giant. I wrestle with the same doubts and insecurities that every one of us do. I face the same challenges that you do. As a parent, I have the same concerns for our kids that you do. And I have to contend 
with the same broken, sinful human nature that every single one of us have to wrestle with in this life. But here is the wonderful truth. Jesus takes ordinary, everyday, broken, insecure, imperfect people, full of failure, full of doubts and full of baggage. And He says, I'm going to make something absolutely wonderful and beautiful out of what you think is not so beautiful. Let's give God a round of applause this morning. And I have placed something within you by my Holy Spirit. And if you will allow me, I'm going to fan that into flame. And I'm going to day by day as you live your life in complete surrender to me, begin to transform you in such a way that you will start reflecting me. Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So who does God call? I want to read this account from Luke 6 and 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came... He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. So here is Jesus choosing from his disciples. And he had a lot more than just 12 disciples. But from those disciples who walked with him and journeyed with him, on this day, he chose 12 of those and appointed them to be apostles. That was the designation that he gave to them. What is an apostle? Well, there's a lot in the role of apostle, but Mark's gospel gives us a little bit of that purpose and insight into that. Mark 3 and 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So that's a part of their job description. So out of his disciples, Jesus is choosing just 12 to become and to be appointed and designated apostles. Who is he looking for? What kind of resume would he need of the people that he chooses for that task? And it's an important task because the book of Ephesians tells us that these men, these apostles, are the very foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 and 20, built, speaking of the church, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with uh, Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So these men are the men that Jesus chose to be the very foundation of the church that continues to us this very day. So naturally, we would assume that he was looking for extraordinary people, spiritual giants in some kind of way. But the reality is, as we dig into this today for a few minutes, we'll discover he just called a group of extremely ordinary people. I find this so encouraging. And as we look at the men that Jesus himself chose, 
we can discover something wonderful about God. We can discover something wonderful and beautiful about the church. And we can discover something really wonderful about ourselves. So we have this list of men here in Luke 6. So let's quickly go through the list. The first on the list was Simon Peter. Peter, if you're familiar with him, is uh, pretty outspoken, a bit of an extrovert. He's got an opinion on everything. Uh, very passionate. Uh, often when he speaks, um, what he says is not right. And Jesus corrects him. In fact, on one occasion in Matthew 16 and 23, he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have th in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So, so this is amazing. We've got to unpack this. This is Peter chosen to be an apostle, chosen to be one of these 12 upon which the church would be established and built. And here we have an occasion, Jesus is probably a little bit frustrated with Peter and says, Peter, you don't have a divine perspective. You do not have in mind the things of God. You have a human perspective. And the low point for Peter, we know, is on the night that Jesus was arrested and Jesus had told his disciples, listen, you guys, tomorrow you're all going to flee. Uh, Peter took exception to that. It's like, hang on, Jesus, what, what do you mean we're all going to flee? Uh, you know me. He said, I mean, maybe the others will flee, but I'm going to be hanging around. Um, you know me well. I've walked with you for the last three years. So Jesus, you know that I'll be there to the end. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter, again indignant, says, Jesus, if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Even if I have to die, Jesus, I will never disown you. And as we know, Jesus was right. Yes, Jesus had spent the last three years with Peter, so he knew exactly what he was like. And Peter disowns Jesus. But the interesting thing is, you have this guy who, if he was on your team, you go, this is a pretty impressive guy. He says all the right things, but he just doesn't follow through. The next on the list is Andrew, his, who is the brother of Peter. And that's probably his biggest problem. He just totally lives in the shadow of Peter. We have very little record of anything Andrew did or said. The only time he appears, apart from when he's just mentioned by name, was when Jesus was preaching to the 5,000 and they ran out of, the, out of food. John 6 and 9, and this is Andrew speaking, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? And I can just see it. Hey, Jesus, here's a little boy. He's, he's come, come uh, with his lunch. <laughs> but uh, it's pretty cute. But we know it's not going to do anything. And Andrew in that moment, seemed to have no concept of what Jesus could do in that situation. Then on the list is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're often mentioned together. They used to be fishermen. They were in partnership with Peter and Andrew. Jesus called that group all together. And here is James and John, son of Zebedee, often listed together. John is the John who wrote a number of letters in the, in the New Testament, he actually, uh, some theologians give him the nickname, uh, the Apostle of Love. And when you read his writings, he, 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 
it's all about the love of Jesus and the grace of God. And uh, there's no wonder he's called the apostle of love. But interestingly, when Jesus first called James and John, they were anything but the apostles of love. They were actually really arrogant, uh, really hot-tempered. Um, and we've got this account in Luke, 4 and 50, uh, Luke 9 and 54. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? It's not very loving, is it? It says Jesus turned and rebuked them. But that's James and John. Burn them up. Just burn them up. Mark 3 and 17 tells us the nickname that Jesus gave to them, which is Bonerges. I think I got the pronunciation right, which means sons of thunder. So here are the sons of thunder. These two brothers, angry, arrogant, proud, destroy the people of Samaria. That's their tactic when there's opposition. And it is absolutely wonderful and amazing that John is totally transformed from being one of the sons of thunder to becoming the apostle of love because it was it simply wasn't what he was in the natural. But that's the transformational power of God. Philip's the next one listed. Philip only ever speaks twice in the four Gospels. And I like Philip because he comes across just a little bit slow to catch on. Uh, Jesus uh, actually did a little bit of a test on Philip in John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great, a great crowd coming towards them, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked him this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. Now, this whole conversation was a test for Philip. In other words, Jesus wasn't looking for advice from Philip. He didn't need to learn anything from him. He already had in mind what he was going to do. He was actually just testing Philip to see what Philip had learned. In other words, hey, Philip, come here, mate. Uh, listen, I, I want to do a little bit of a test on you. Okay, there's 5,000 people out there. And Philip goes, yeah, I thought there was a lot. And he said, they're really hungry. Yeah, Jesus, I'm getting pretty hungry too. Um, well, Philip, uh, the people are wondering where they're going to get the food from. It's like, Jesus, you read my mind because I was thinking exactly the same thing. Well, Philip, how are we going to feed 5,000 people? Work it out. And the way Philip responded to the situation was to look at what was possible in the natural. How much money do we have? Well, that's nowhere near enough money to buy food for this crowd. And so Jesus tests him and discovered that Philip hadn't really learned a lot to this point. The second time we have Philip speaking is in the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. John 14 and 6, Jesus answered, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And I can see the look on Philip's face just getting a little bit confused going, hang on, Jesus, you're confusing me with your theology. Please just keep it simple and show us the Father. So that's, that's Philip. He just seems a little bit slow to catch on and he certainly hasn't learned a lot. The next on the list is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is actually only ever mentioned in a list of names of the apostles. However, some of the commentators believe that Bartholomew is the same disciple that John, in his account, calls Nathaniel. John 1.45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what's the response? Quite prejudiced, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? That was Bartholomew. That was Nathaniel's response. So here is this guy Jesus chose, and he's got a little bit of prejudice in him. He made assumptions about Jesus based on where he was from. And then Matthew is the next one on the list. Matthew is a tax collector. As a tax collector, he would have been regarded amongst the lowest of the low because even though he was a Jew, they were traitors to their own people because they worked for the uh, Roman authorities. And they had to bring taxes for the Roman government, but they were totally corrupt and uh, tried to collect as much as they could and only paid what was due and what was required. So they were notoriously corrupt. In fact, tax collectors, as you read through the Gospels, are given a special category of their own. It says Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. So they're not even, they're not even ranked in with sinners. They got their own category. So sinners and tax So Matthew is one of these tax collectors. But interestingly, his name, the name he was given at birth, was Levi. But Jesus calls him. And I don't know what that initial conversation looked like, but maybe Jesus said to him, Levi, I know who you are. I know your background. I know you are a person who nobody likes. You got no self-esteem, no dignity, kicked around, rejected by your own people. But listen, I want you, I want you to come with me. And I'm going to give you a new name. And your name is Matthew, which means gift of God. How cool is that? What a beautiful picture. I know you used to be a thief, but now you've become a gift, a gift of God. What an incredible transformation. Then Thomas is the next one on the list. The only reference we have to Thomas is in John's Gospel. And he's best known, of course, for doubting, doubting Thomas. He doubted Jesus' resurrection. I won't believe it until I got proof. But he also seems to be a little bit pessimistic, has a negative view about things. There was an occasion where word came to Jesus that one of his friends, Lazarus, was sick. And Jesus said to his disciples, well, let's go to Judea. 
Now, the disciples questioned whether that would be a good move because last time they were in Judea, the people tried to stone Jesus. But then Thomas pipes up and he says this in John 11 and 16, Let us also go that we may die with him. And it's like, really? So that's Thomas. He's a doubter and he tends to be a little bit pessimistic. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know anything at all about James, the son of Alphaeus, except that his father's name is Alphaeus. And people only seem to talk about him in regards to not getting him confused with the other James, the brother of John. So he's James, the son of Alphaeus. We know nothing he ever did or said. Then there is Simon the Zealot next on the list. The Zealots were this movement that began in AD 6 and they were an important movement. They were a group who revolted against the Roman authorities on the basis that they refused to pay tax to Rome because in paying tax to Rome, you're actually dishonouring God because we are God's people. And so they led this movement, stopped paying taxes to to Rome and tried to live independently of the Roman Empire. Now, the movement didn't last too long. The government wiped it out pretty, pretty quickly. But Simon was one of that group. He was a zealot. Today, we would call him a political activist. And I reckon when Jesus called him, part of the attraction to becoming one of Jesus' followers, that he probably came with a bit of a political agenda. Now, what I love about this picture is that a part of this group of 12 that that Jesus designated apostles, you've got Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot, who would have hated each other. One was this activist so passionate about Israel and their standing in God, and here's this other guy who's a total traitor. And yet Jesus says, Matthew, I want you to be one of my team. Simon, I want you to be one of my team. How about you guys go over and sit there together? And I love that picture. Because in the natural, this is an absolute recipe for disaster. But here they are as Jesus' closest disciples. And that is transformation. The 11th is Judas, son of James. In Matthew's gospel, he's referred to as Thaddeus, but Thaddeus was the disciple nobody's ever heard of. One title given to him in John chapter 14 is Judas, not Iscariot. In other words, he's best known for who he's not. This is Judas, not Iscariot. Which brings us to the last one on the list, Judas Iscariot. Judas is the last in every list because he's the one who became the betrayer. He is the treasurer. He was the guy assigned to look after the money. Most times when we read about Judas, it actually has to do with money. And we automatically think then that he's kind of this shady looking character. You know, he's off to the side, his dress is in black and he's often down dark alleys doing really shady deals. But that is actually not really the picture. He would have appeared to be very reliable, incredibly trustworthy, someone of great character, because if it wasn't that way, he wouldn't have been given the job of treasurer. In fact, when Jesus announced to the group in the upper room that one of them would betray him, they didn't automatically go, well, it's going to be Judas. 
What they actually said was, Lord, is it I? And so here we have Judas Iscariot. He betrayed Jesus. And then in the aftermath of that, he carried the, the absolute personal agony of the realisation of what he's done that was so overwhelming for him that he ends up committing suicide. But Jesus brought this guy into his team. So these are the 12 that Jesus appointed apostles. Now, ladies, just before we go assuming there's some kind of boys club, there is a lot of women that Jesus travelled with as a group of those broader disciples. They weren't appointed as apostles, but they were certainly among his committed disciples. Luke, Luke 8 and 1, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, who from seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Joanna is a really impressive person to have on your team. She is the wife of a man called Cusa, who is the chief of Herod's staff. So she had uh, prominence, she had uh, importance, she had standing and she had wealth. There was Susanna, we don't know too much about her and many others. And it says that these women were helping support uh, the others out of their own means. So they were women of incredible worth. Not only were they paying their own way, but they're supporting the others as well and supporting the work. We have Joanna being wealthy, married to uh, Susa, the head of, uh, uh, of Herod's staff. And even amongst these women, you have a beautiful contrast. You have Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons uh, had been driven out of her. She lived in the gutter before she met Jesus. And now she is brought into fellowship alongside of Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who is a, a socialite. She is somebody of standing. And it is a strange picture, but friends, it is a beautiful picture. They're now on the same team. And friends, this list of disciples is a bunch of ordinary, very unlikely and very flawed people. Ranging from your Peter's, the loudmouth, impulsive one, always talking, to the non-entity, Judas, not Iscariot. From arrogant James and John, the sons of thunder, who wanted to destroy the enemies, to James, the son of Alphaeus who was obviously so reserved, most of the gospel writers forgot to mention him. You got Simon the Zealot, the political act activist, next to Matthew the traitor, the tax collector. Thomas the pessimist, the one who always demanded proof from the simple Philip who just kind of drifted along, just going with the flow, to Judas the betrayer. From Joanna the socialite, the wife of the head of Herod's household, to Mary Magdalene, the, the, the demon-possessed woman. What a bunch of ordinary people. And friends, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. Can I hear an amen? amen. And i got to tell you, it's a picture I'm looking at right now. Amen. How good is that? Ordinary people. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus takes ordinary people. For what purpose? 
He calls them to do extraordinary things. And what's the key to ordinary people doing extraordinary things? What is it that transforms us into being image bearers of Jesus? Well, friends, it is Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 1 and 26, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Verse 31 says, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, it's a great day in my life. It was a great day. It's a great day in your life when you realize I am foolish, I am weak, I'm despised. But the cool thing is, it's those vessels that Jesus chooses to use to fill and to display his power, to be his church. All we're going to do is just trust him obey Him, make ourselves available every single day with an expectation that says, you know, God wants to use me today. God, please exchange my weakness for your strength, my foolishness for your wisdom. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has what? Gone. And the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, you are called, you are set apart. And it's time for us to stop making excuses, to stop doing as I did, thinking I could never do what you do. It's time to get out of the spectator stands and get active in the game. Because it's not about how we see ourselves. It's about how God beautifully and wonderfully sees us. You're a new creation. We've got to start living as new creation people. Can I hear an amen? Praise God.